Chapter thirty nine of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Dryfoos family stayed in town till August. Then the father went west again to look after his interests, and Mrs. Mandel took the two girls to one of the great hotels in Saratoga. Fulkerson said that he had never seen anything like Saratoga for fashion, and Mrs. Mandel remembered that in her own young ladyhood this was so for at least some weeks of the year. She had been too far withdrawn from fashion since her marriage to know whether it was still so or not. In this, as in so many other matters, the Dryfoos family helplessly relied upon Fulkerson, in spite of Dryfoos's angry determination that he should not run the family, and in spite of Christine's doubt of his omniscience. If he did not know everything, she was aware that he knew more than herself. She thought that they had a right to have him go with them to Saratoga, or at least go up and engage their rooms beforehand, but Fulkerson did not offer to do either and she did not quite see her way to commanding his services. The young ladies took what Mela called splendid dresses with them. They sat in the park of tall, slim trees, which the hotel's quadrangle enclosed, and listened to the music in the morning, or on the long piazza in the afternoon, and looked at the driving in the street, or in the vast parlours by night, where all the other ladies were, and they felt that they were of the best there. But they knew nobody and Mrs. Mandel was so particular that Mela was prevented from continuing the acquaintance even of the few young men who danced with her at the Saturday night hops. They drove about, but they went to places without knowing why, except that the carriage-man took them, and they had all the privileges of a proud exclusivism without desiring them. Once a motherly matron seemed to perceive their isolation, and made overtures to them, but then desisted, as if repelled by Christine's suspicion, or by Mela's too instant and hilarious good fellowship, which expressed itself in hoarse laughter, and in a flow of talk full of topical and syntactical freedom. From time to time she offered to bet Christine that if Mr. Fulkerson was only there, they would have a good time. She wondered what they were all doing in New York, where she wished herself. She rallied her sister about Beaton, and asked her why she did not write and tell him to come up there. Mela knew that Christine had expected Beaton to follow them. Some banter had passed between them to this effect. He said he should take them in on his way home to Syracuse. Christine would not have hesitated to write to him and remind him of his promise but she had learned to distrust her literature with Beaton, since he had laughed at the spelling in a scrap of writing which dropped out of her music-book one night. She believed that he would not have laughed if he had known it was hers, but she felt that she could hide better the deficiencies which were not committed to paper. She could manage with him in talking. She was too ignorant of her ignorance to recognize the mistake she made then. Through her passion she perceived that she had some kind of fascination for him. She was graceful, and she thought it must be that. She did not understand that there was a kind of beauty in her small, irregular features that piqued and haunted his artistic sense, and a look in her black eyes beyond her intelligence and intention. Once he sketched her as they sat together, and flattered the portrait without getting what he wanted in it. He said he must try her some time in colour and he said things which, when she made Mela repeat them, could only mean that he admired her more than anybody else. He came fitfully, but he came often, 
and she rested content in a girl's indefiniteness concerning the affair. If her thought went beyond love-making to marriage, she believed that she could have him if she wanted him. Her father's money counted in this. She divined that Beaton was poor, but that made no difference. She would have enough for both. The money would have counted as an irresistible attraction if there had been no other. The affair had gone on in spite of the sidelong looks of restless dislike with which Dryfoos regarded it. But now, when Beaton did not come to Saratoga, it necessarily dropped, and Christine's content with it. She bore the trial as long as she could. She used pride and resentment against it. But at last she could not bear it, and with Mela's help she wrote a letter, bantering Beaton on his stay in New York, and playfully boasting of Saratoga. It seemed to them both that it was a very bright letter, and would be sure to bring him. They would have had no scruple about sending it, but for the doubt they had whether they had got some of the words right. Mela offered to bet Christine anything she dared, that they were right, and she said, send it anyway. It was no difference if they were wrong. But Christine could not endure to think of that laugh of Beaton's, and there remained only Mrs. Mandel as authority on the spelling. Christine dreaded her authority on other points, but Mela said she knew she would not interfere, and she undertook to get round her. Mrs. Mandel pronounced the spelling bad, and the taste worse. She forbade them to send the letter, and Mela failed to get round her, though she threatened, if Mrs. Mandel would not tell her how to spell the wrong words, that she would send the letter as it was. Then Mrs. Mandel said that if Mr. Beaton appeared in Saratoga, she would instantly take them both home. When Mela reported this result, Christine accused her of having mismanaged the whole business. She quarrelled with her, and they called each other names. Christine declared that she would not stay in Saratoga, and that if Mrs. Mandel did not go back to New York with her, she should go alone. They returned the first week in September, but by that time Beaton had gone to see his people in Syracuse. Conrad Dreyfus remained at home with his mother after his father went west. He had already taken such a vacation as he had been willing to allow himself, and had spent it on a charity farm near the city, where the fathers with whom he worked among the poor on the east side in the winter had sent some of their wards for the summer. It was not possible to keep his recreation a secret at the office, and Fulkerson found a pleasure in figuring the jolly times Brother Conrad must have teaching farm-work among those paupers and potential reprobates. He invented details of his experience among them, and March could not always help joining in the laugh at Conrad's humorless helplessness under Fulkerson's burlesque denunciation of a summer outing spent in such dissipation. They had time for a great deal of joking at the office during the season of leisure which penetrates in August to the very heart of business, and they all got on terms of greater intimacy, if not greater friendliness, than before. Fulkerson had not had so long to do with the advertising side of human nature without developing a vein of cynicism of no great depth, perhaps, but broad and underlying his whole point of view. He made light of Beaton's solemnity, as he made light of Conrad's humanity. The art editor, with abundant sarcasm, had no more humour than the publisher, and was an easy prey in the manager's hands. But when he had been led on by Fulkerson's flatteries, 
to make some betrayal of egotism, he brooded over it till he had thought how to revenge himself in elaborate insult. For Beaton's talent, Fulkerson never lost his admiration, but his joke was to encourage him to give himself airs of being the sole source of the magazine's prosperity. No bait of this sort was too obvious for Beaton to swallow. He could be caught with it as often as Fulkerson chose, though he was ordinarily suspicious as to the motives of people in saying things. With March he got on no better than at first. He seemed to be lying in wait for some encroachment of the literary department on the art department, and he met it now and then with anticipative reprisal. After these rebuffs the editor delivered him over to the manager, who could turn Beaton's contrary-mindedness to account by asking the reverse of what he really wanted done. This was what Fulkerson said. The fact was that he did get on with Beaton, and March contented himself with musing upon the contradictions of a character at once so vain and so offensive, so fickle and so sullen, so conscious and so simple. After the first jarring contact with Dryfoos, the editor ceased to feel the disagreeable fact of the old man's mastery of the financial situation. None of the chances which might have made it painful occurred. The control of the whole affair remained in Fulkerson's hands. Before he went west again, Dryfoos had ceased to come about the office, as if, having once worn off the novelty of the sense of owning a literary periodical, he was no longer interested in it. Yet it was a relief, somehow, when he left town, which he did not do without coming to take a formal leave of the editor at his office. He seemed willing to leave March with a better impression than he had hitherto troubled himself to make. He even said some civil things about the magazine, as if its success pleased him, and he spoke openly to March of his hope that his son would finally become interested in it to the exclusion of the hopes and purposes which divided them. It seemed to March that in the old man's warped and toughened heart he perceived a disappointed love for his son greater than for his other children, but this might have been fancy. Lindau came in with some copy while Dreyfus was there, and March introduced them. When Lindau went out, March explained to Dreyfus that he had lost his hand in the war, and he told him something of Lindau's career as he had known it. Dreyfus appeared greatly pleased that every other week was giving Lindau work. He said that he had helped to enlist a good many fellows for the war, and had paid money to fill up the Moffat Company quota under the later calls for troops. He had never been an abolitionist, but he had joined the anti-Nebraska party in '55, and he had voted for Fremont and for every Republican president since then. At his own house March saw more of Lindau than of any other contributor, but the old man seemed to think that he must transact all his business with March at his place of business. The transaction had some peculiarities which perhaps made this necessary. Lindau always expected to receive his money when he brought his copy as an acknowledgment of the immediate right of the labourer to his hire and he would not take it in a cheque because he did not approve of banks, and regarded the whole system of banking as the capitalistic manipulation of the people's money. He would receive his pay only from March's hand, because he wished to be understood as working for him, and honestly earning money honestly earned, 
and sometimes March inwardly winced a little at letting the old man share the increase of capital won by such speculation as Dryfoos's, but he shook off the feeling. As the summer advanced, and the artists and classes that employed Lindau as a model left town one after another, he gave largely of his increasing leisure to the people in the office of every other week. It was pleasant for March to see the respect with which Conrad Dryfoos always used him, for the sake of his hurt and his grey beard. There was something delicate and fine in it, and there was nothing unkindly on Fulkerson's part in the hostilities which usually passed between himself and Lindau. Fulkerson bore himself reverently at times, too, but it was not in him to keep that up, especially when Lindau appeared with more beer aboard than, as Fulkerson said, he could manage shipshape. On these occasions Fulkerson always tried to start him on the theme of the unduly rich. He made himself the champion of monopolies, and enjoyed the invectives which Lindau heaped upon him as a slave of capital. He said that it did him good. One day, with the usual show of writhing under Lindau's scorn, he said, "'Well, I understand that although you despise me now, Lindau—' "'I don't despise you,' the old man broke in, his nostrils swelling and his eyes flaming with excitement. "'I pity you.' "'Well, it seems to come to the same thing in the end,' said Fulkerson. "'What I understand is that you pity me now as the slave of capital, but you would pity me a great deal more if I was the master of it.' "'How do you mean?' "'If I was rich.' "'That would depend,' said Lindau, trying to control himself. "'If you had inherited your money, you might be innocent. But if you had made it, every man that respected himself would have to ask how you made it, and if you had made much, he would know—' "'Hold on, hold on now, Lindau. Ain't that rather un-American doctrine? We're all brought up, ain't we, to honour the man that made his money, and to look down, or try to look down, sometimes it's difficult, on the fellow that his father left it to? The old man rose and struck his breast. Un-American, he roared, and as he went on his accent grew more and more uncertain. What is American? There is no America any more. You start here free and brave, and you claim for every man the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And where have you ended? No man that works with his hands among you has the liberty to pursue his happiness. He is the slave of some richer man, some company, some corporation, that grind him down to the least he can live on, and that robs him of the margin of his earnings that he might be happy on. Oh, you Americans, you have got it down gold, as you say. You don't buy voters, you buy legislatures and congressmen, you buy courts, you buy competitors, you pay inventors not to invent, you advertise, and the counting-room sees that the editorial-room doesn't tink. Yes, we've got a little arrangement of that sort with March here, said Fulkerson. Oh, I am sorry, said the old man contritely. I meant nothing personal. I don't think we are all guilty or corrupt, and even among the rich there are good men. But capital, his passion rose again, where you find capital, millions of money that a man has got together in five, ten, twenty years, you find the smell of tears and blood. That is what I say. And you've got to look out for yourself when you meet a rich man, whether you meet an honest man. Well, said Fulkerson, I wish I was a subject of suspicion with you, Lindau. 
By the way, he added, I understand that you think capital was at the bottom of the veto of that pension of yours. What pension? What veto? The old man flamed up again. No pension of mine was ever vetoed. I renounce my pension because I would scorn to take money from a government that I don't believe in any more. Where you hear that story? Well, I don't know, said Fulkerson, rather embarrassed. It's common talk. It's a common lie, then. When the time come that this is a free country again, then I take a pension again for my wounds. But I would starve before I take a pension now from a republic that is bought up by monopolies and run by trusts and combines and railroads and oil companies. Look out, Lindau, said Fulkerson. You bite yourself mit dat dog some day. But when the old man, with a ferocious gesture of renunciation, whirled out of the place, he added, I guess I went a little too far that time. I touched him in a sore place. I didn't mean to. I heard some talk about his pension being vetoed from Miss Leighton. He addressed these exculpations to March's grave face, and to the pitying deprecation in the eyes of Conrad Dreyfus, whom Lindau's roaring wrath had summoned to the door. But I'll make it all right with him the next time he comes. I didn't know he was loaded, or I wouldn't have monkeyed with him. Lindau does himself injustice when he gets to talking in that way, said March. I hate to hear him. He's as good an American as any of us. It's only because he has too high an ideal of us. Oh, go on, rub it in, rub it in, cried Fulkerson, clutching his hair in suffering, which was not altogether burlesque. How did I know he had renounced his pension? Why didn't you tell me? I didn't know it myself. I only knew that he had none, and I didn't ask, for I had a notion that it might be a painful subject. Fulkerson tried to turn it off lightly. Well, he's a noble old fellow. Pity he drinks. March would not smile, and Fulkerson broke out. Doggone it! I'll make it up to the old fool the next time he comes. I don't like that dynamite talk of his, but any man that's given his hand to the country has got mine in his grip for good. Why, March, you don't suppose I wanted to hurt his feelings, do you? Why, of course not, Fulkerson. But they could not get away from a certain ruefulness for that time, and in the evening Fulkerson came round to March's to say that he had got Lindau's address from Conrad and had looked him up at his lodgings. Well, there isn't so much bric-a-brac there quite as Mrs. Green left you, but I made it all right with Lindau, as far as I'm concerned. I told him I didn't know when I spoke that way, and I honoured him for sticking to his principles. I don't believe in his principles, and we wept on each other's necks, at least he did. Dogged if he didn't kiss me before I knew what he was up to. He said I was his generous young friend, and he begged my pardon if he had said anything to wound me. I tell you, it was an affecting scene, March, and rats enough around in that old barracks where he lives to fit out a first-class case of delirium treatments. What does he stay there for? He's not obliged to. Lindau's reasons, as March repeated them, affected Fulkerson as deliciously comical, but after that he confined his pleasantries at the office to Beaton and Conrad Dreyfus, or, as he said, he spent the rest of the summer in keeping Lindau smoothed up. It is doubtful if Lindau altogether liked this as well. 
Perhaps he missed the occasions Fulkerson used to give him of bursting out against the millionaires, and he could not well go on denouncing as the slave of capital a man who had behaved to him as Fulkerson had done, though Fulkerson's servile relations to capital had been in no wise changed by his noble conduct. Their relations continued to wear this irksome character of mutual forbearance, and when Dryfoos returned in October, and Fulkerson revived the question of that dinner in celebration of the success of every other week, he carried his complaisance to an extreme that alarmed March for the consequences. End of chapter 39